I want to do something a little different. The book of Esther is a marvelous book. We've spoken about it quite, uh, quite often. And certainly the central theme of the book of Esther is the sovereignty of God. He's in control of all things. The word God, reference to God, is never found in the book of Esther. But his fingerprint and his activity is from cover to cover, from beginning to end. It is God at work in behind the scenes, you might say, through the events and activities that we read about that reveals his love for his people Israel, his protection of those who are the apple of his eye, and bringing his people to the point uh, to which he has called them. And the raising up of those to demonstrate God's love and protective grace for his people Israel. But we here at Beth Ariel are in the midst of a very unique opportunity and transition. And so I want to make a connection between what I see in the book of Esther and what we at Beth Ariel have the opportunity to embark upon as well. Some would say this is sort of a springboard approach to a message, which I'm not particularly fond of, but will utilize for my own purposes today. But here's the thing. This passage in Esther speaks directly to me and ought to speak to all of us here at Beth Ariel who are looking forward to what God has in store in the very near future and in the years ahead. This passage which says, who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. I believe Beth Ariel is at such a time for this unique in the history of our congregation that is 30 years old. And what God is going to do here is going to be quite remarkable and quite miraculous. That's what I believe. God will yet demonstrate whether or not I have a sense of this rightly or not. And I can take, Gary, you missed it by a thousand miles. And then I'll move on to where I need to. But I really believe that God has placed us at a unique moment. Such a time as this for our congregation. And I don't want to miss it. Now, what I see about Esther and Nehemiah, which we've been looking at, seem to parallel very, very nicely for me. Not only Esther and Nehemiah, but men like Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah as well. All of these things are sort of crystallizing at this moment for me as I look at God's word. So with your memory on that passage... Perhaps God has raised you, Esther, to royal position. Perhaps God has raised Beth Ariel to this position at this time for such a time as this which we are about to approach. With that in mind, do look at the book of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah is not that far after the book of Esther. In fact, I'm going to show you an interesting connection between the two in a moment. But with Nehemiah, what I began to think about as I was rereading chapter 1, which I spoke on last week, and focused on Nehemiah's response, which was prayer, which I encouraged you all to be engaged in, to be praying as God leads us down this road. We, don't, we ought not to be limited to only praying, but we must begin by praying, and praying that God will open up the doors that are cracking right before our eyes to be burst wide open for us to rush in. What I'd like to look at with regard to Nehemiah and Esther is how did they know God's calling on their life? 
In some sense, this can be very practical for our individual lives. But I'm thinking about God's calling on the life of Beth Ariel as a congregation. How do we know what God's desire is for us? Both Nehemiah and Esther give us certain principles that are critical to knowing the will of God. And here they are. The first is, in order to know the will of God, you must first know you're a servant of God. See, we are his servants. And therefore, servants serve the will of their king and master. God is our king. And thus, any calling by our king must first presuppose we are his servants. Now take a look at Nehemiah chapter 1. When he prays, if you look at chapter 1 verse 6, he says, if I can find it fast enough, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying. Look at verse 11. He says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant. Why did Nehemiah know the will of God? Because he knew he was God's servant first. And unless you know that we're here to serve, we will not know what the will of God is because that's what we are meant to do, serve God. How can you serve him if you don't know what his will is? How can he tell you his will if you're not willing to serve him? In fact, having preached through the book of Romans earlier, this passage jumped out at me. Take a look at this, Romans chapter 12. We're all familiar with it. But think of it in this light, a little differently perhaps. But in Romans chapter 12, Paul tells us to consecrate ourselves as servants of the living God. Look what he says. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. What does that mean? Offer yourself as a servant. And then what does he say? Holy, pleasing to God. This is your spiritual spiritual act of worship. Do not continue any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? Then you will be able to test and approve to know what God's will is. If you're not willing to be a servant, you will not know the will of God. If you're not willing to serve God by first of all giving yourselves as living sacrifices, God will not tell you what his will is. And what he has told you about his will in his word will go unheeded by us, misunderstood and disobeyed. The first step in knowing the will of God is knowing you're a servant placed here to serve, to do the will of the master. Here's another thing that really struck me about Nehemiah. Turn back to it. Notice when he goes to pray, look at this in verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants. Notice, Nehemiah wasn't alone. He had others who were drawn alongside of him. Give ear to my prayer, but also to these who have joined me in prayer regarding your will. Be attentive to these words of your servant, but also of your servants. Who were these guys? We never read about them. But Nehemiah knew there were others that had come alongside of him to pursue God's will in light of the circumstances he was facing. The first step in knowing God's will, you must first be humbled as a servant before him and willing to do 
whatever he bids. Here's the second step to know the will of God. If you want to know God's will, you've got to care about others. You've got to be interested in the benefits and needs of others. Look what, ne- what happens in Nehemiah chapter 1. What prompted Nehemiah to pray and to bow before the Lord was not his own agenda, but it was the agenda of others. He said, the word came to me that Judah is torn down. The people are disgraced. The city is, is in an upheaval, and the walls have come down. Everything has nothing whatsoever to do with Nehemiah. In fact, Nehemiah had it good. Okay, maybe he had a little dangerous profession as the wine tester for the king. But put that aside for the moment. He had immediate access to the king. He lived in the palace. Remember, Nehemiah is a Jew. He's nothing more than an elevated slave. He didn't have an opportunity to say, you know, I kind of like the benefits, but I don't like the job description. And the king would say, okay, I'll find somebody else. No, Nehemiah didn't have a choice. He was nothing more than an elevated slave in the kingdom of Persia. But yet, his concerns were for those in Israel who didn't have it as good as he had it in the palace of the king. You want to know the will of God? It requires you to, first of all, know you're a servant of the living God, and second of all, that we are interested in the interests of others. So why do I say this? I say this because, as I think of Beth Ariel, we have a commission and a calling to reach the lost sheep of the house of Israel. If we're going to be most concerned with our own comfort zone and our own comfort of living, God is never going to tell us his will. And he's never going to enable us to accomplish it. Because what God is interested in is using us as his servants for the benefit of others. And the others that Beth Ariel is to be concerned about are the Jewish people who are not hearing the gospel as they should. Here in Los Angeles. Now I have nothing against the non-Jewish communities here that need to hear the gospel too. But my calling is to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Beth Ariel's existence is for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the same kind of dedication and concerns we have for what goes, what goes on here in our body, we should have equally for what's going on from our body to reach the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The walls of Jerusalem are torn down. Our people are walking into an eternal abyss because they're not hearing the word. And so what is it that we're concerned about? They are insignificant things when we're thinking about the eternal destiny of God's chosen people. The eternal destiny of the people from whom our Savior has come. The eternal destiny of the people of the festivals which we observe. And God is opening a door for us to walk through. And if we're going to walk through that door and know it to be the will of God, we must first of all know we are servants of the living God. And as servants of the living God, the living God said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We should so love the world that we will give of ourselves in order to reach it as well. Even if it would cost us our very lives. Yeshua himself said, no greater love has anyone than this than that he laid down his life for his friends. Are we willing to lay down our life? Are we willing to raise up our lives for our friends? Forget about dying. Are we willing to live for them? Why was Nehemiah used so mightily in Esther? Because their eyes were off of themselves and they were on others. Esther 
understood her people were in peril. Nehemiah understood his people were in peril. They wanted to do something about it, and they wanted to do something significant, and it would be risky at best. It meant she had to go before the king and hope God was in this and that he would extend his scepter. He, she put her life on the line. Daniel as well. Daniel could have said, oh, I just won't pray for 30 days. But he was a servant of the living God. And 30 days or not, he needed to be in prayer every day. Whatever would come. And when he had the, lion, the den of lions before him, he walked into it rather than to refuse to serve the king. When Hadani, Mishael, and Azariah could have come up with all kinds of excuses to have bowed down at the proper time. But they were servants of the living God. And they walked in to a furnace. I can't even begin to imagine that. But God was with them every step of the way and even within the furnace itself. I think this is really telling. Nehemiah knew himself as a servant. Nehemiah was concerned for the interests of others. And get this, a third thing was he was concerned with the glory of God. He said, the place where you set your name, your glory, your reputation, your honor is in a shambles. How could we allow that to be? This is dishonoring to the living God, Nehemiah felt. And he said, I want to do something about it. What? I'm not sure. But I want to do something about it. Perhaps he was raised to that position for such a time as that. Esther was raised to that position for such a time as that. And we are raised in this position for such a time that we have. We have a distinct calling to honor the living God by doing his will. And his people are not hearing the good news. The local churches around here are not understanding the roots of their faith. They have very limited perception and understanding, if I don't know what other word to use, regarding the Jewishness of their faith. They just come in and out of their services, worshiping the Jewish Messiah and never think of him or rarely think of him as such. That's not true of every church, but it is certainly true of the church in general. And the glory and honor of God's name needs to be lifted up. And we have opportunity to do that as ones that honor our God within the proper context of who he is. Nehemiah couldn't accept that the temple is sitting in a city that is crumbling around it. That is no way to honor the name of God. And as we have our facility here and as we worship here, as we serve one another here, we have to have the same sort of concern for the Jewish community that is crumbling spiritually around us. It is not honoring to God's name if we are not doing his bidding and bringing his message to those who are lost. A fourth thing that is critical in Nehemiah knowing the will of God and for us as well, not only must we know ourselves as servants, not only must we be interested in the needs of others, not only must we be concerned for the glory and honor and reputation of God himself, forget about ourselves, but of him, but we need to be in prayer. And our prayer must be persistent. And I spoke, spoke about that last week. 
especially when you see Nehemiah beginning in Kislev and ending in Nisan. Four months, he keeps praying and praying and praying. Esther herself says, look, let's pray and fast for three days so I, before I go to the king. Persistence in prayer. Join, others joining with them in prayer. Prayer is critical if we're going to know personally and collectively what God's will is. But here's the really interesting thing to me. In both Esther and Nehemiah, the ultimate determining factor that gets them to move are the circumstances they find themselves in. When you look at Esther, it's because she knows that her people are going to die. The circumstances around her become the mechanism by which she makes that choice to go. She never said, yes, God spoke to my heart, I'm going. She never said, there's no one else doing this, so I'm going to do it. She went because she knew that if she didn't go, it would be the end of her people. Nehemiah is very reluctant to go to the king, as Esther was as well. Nehemiah, in fact, he's sad before the king over what has transpired, and he now is fearful. Look at chapter 2, when the king says, why are you so sad? You never go before the king with that kind of disposition. We see that in the book of Esther as well. Mordecai could not come even near the gate of the king wearing sackcloth and ashes. You don't go near the king with that kind of disposition. But Nehemiah couldn't help himself because he had a genuine concern for his people back in the land. And when the king saw that he was sad, it said he was frightened. But then the king asks him, what is the problem? And Nehemiah, given the circumstances, takes the initiative and tells him exactly what's on his heart. My people in the land are struggling. The walls of the city are destroyed. And the people are not unified. That's what's breaking my heart. Now, here's the amazing thing that gets lost. Artaxerxes permits Nehemiah to go and to raise, get rites of passage in order to get through the checkpoints provides him with a letter of recommendation that he can have the trees from Lebanon in order to rebuild the walls. The fellow who oversees the forest will provide the resources he will need. And in fact, he says, the king says, I'm even going to give you a military escort so that you have safe passage. The king provides more than what even Nehemiah expected or thought about for his own needs. Now, what makes this so remarkable is this. Take a look at the book of Ezra, which precedes the book of Nehemiah. Take a look at chapter 4. Because when the people earlier returned to the land, they began to rebuild, but then the work was stopped. And here's the reason why. Some of the commanding officers the secretary, some of these leaders and government officials write a letter to King Artaxerxes. This is the same king on the throne at the time of Nehemiah. And this is what they write, beginning in chapter 4, verse 12. To King Artaxerxes, from your servants, the king should know that the Jews who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. 
They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid, and the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace, and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we are sending this message to inform the king, so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. In these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place of rebellion from ancient times. That is why this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if the city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing. So how does the king respond? Verse 17, the king sent this reply. The letter you sent to us has been read, verse 18, and translated in my presence. I issued an order And a search was made, and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of trans-Euphrates, and taxes, tribute, duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? Now, how do you think Nehemiah must have felt knowing an edict from the king had gone out, do not build this city? Do you think Nehemiah went to the king feeling, I got this covered, man. We're going to get the walls rebuilt. The same king who issued the decree not to rebuild the walls is going to be the same king who will change his mind and help Nehemiah rebuild the walls. How did that happen? It happened the same way things happened in the book of Esther. God's will would be accomplished and no one could stop it. That was Nehemiah's such a time as this. He could have decided, King, I don't want to tell you anything because you already issued this edict and I know the chances of you changing it is like nil, so forget about it. But the circumstances dictated that he must go forward, share his heart, and make his plans. And God honored that, evidently. And God's will was precisely for Nehemiah to build the walls. That, to me, is just an incredible revelation from God's word. Anyone ever see that before? I never did. But there it was, that the same king who was adamant about the walls staying down was the same king who now became adamant that the walls would be rebuilt. So this afternoon, some of us, our elders, are headed over to the Bridge Bible Fellowship. As I shared earlier, they asked us, what do we think about this property? What do we think about this facility? And when they asked, I said, well, there's a lot about this property I really don't like. There's much about the property that I think has great potential. It reminds me so much of my time back in Annapolis when I was there for 18 years. And in the first 10 years or something like that, there was this little church building on two acres of property that was falling apart, that had walls up that you had to walk through a maze. You can ask Mary, though. I'm not exaggerating. All the lights were 
uh, what do you call those lights with the two fluorescent lights? Can you imagine fluorescent lights in a sanctuary along the corner of the of the uh, sanctuary? It was so tight. There were these rooms that had no windows in them because they put up walls that covered the windows. It was so dark. It was just a mess. And the first time I walked through it, I said, there is no way. This was like about eight years into that ministry. No way I would ever buy this building or a building like it. Three years later, we were buying that building. We were at our wit's end. Where are we going to go? Are we going to keep bouncing around from place to place? When I went to that church, we met in an elementary school. We then had an office building. We met in the library of a high school. We met in an abandoned warehouse. We met in a college auditorium. We met in a Holiday Inn. We met in a Marriott. And then the building opened up again. And the elders I was working with said, let's just walk through it one more time. I walked through it again. I said, it hasn't changed. In fact, it looks worse because it was empty. And then a person said, I want you to walk through it with an architect. So I walked through it with an architect, me and him. He said, Gary, I want you to tell me everything you would like in this building. Tell me what you would like it to look like. So that's what I did. I walked through. I said, this wall out, that window open, this ceiling lifted up. Those new windows, put, they had windows that didn't open up in the sanctuary. I said, I want those blinds. You know those, what do you call those blinds? Plantation blinds and shutters. I want this thing repainted. I want all new carpeting. I want new tile. I want a nursery over here. I want a children's room here. I want all this stuff. He said, I'll draw it up. He drew it up, and we found it was going to cost us so much money to change. He said, could you change your thought of what you would like? But what I liked began to circulate. And some contractors heard of it. And they said, we heard you would like this done. We could do it for X number of dollars. They said, are you kidding me? That was like 10% of what we were told. And they started transforming that building. It's still going on today. And now that church has grown. A new pastor is there. And going to that church, I love it. When I stand on those platforms, and it's a small place, half the size of this, I love speaking there. It's like I'm just right there with the people, worshiping the Lord and praising his name. God did that. I just read, uh, I just read recently this devotional. Mar- Martin Lloyd-Jones, perhaps one of the greatest Bible teachers in the 20th century. He was dying of cancer. And someone went to him and said, Now that you know you're at the end of your life, how does it feel thinking about all the things you had did and now you can't do any of them? How does it feel no longer be able to preach five days a week, which he did, to write all the books that you've written, to meet with all the people in counseling and and in encouragement that you'd meet with, teaching in the various uh, schools that you're teaching at? Now you can't do it. How do you deal with that? He went to Luke chapter 10. And in Luke chapter 10, Yeshua is met by his disciples. And the disciples say that when you sent us out, even the demons obeyed us. And what did Messiah say? Do not rejoice that the demons obey you. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. 
So he said, that's what I think about all those things. I rejoice that my name is in the book of life. We have a great opportunity to purchase this property. We have a great opportunity to establish a beacon of outreach to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We have a great opportunity to train local churches as they share the good news with their Jewish friends to do it effectively and to see more of God's people come to know the Lord as Savior. We have an opportunity to organize in a cooperative venture of all the different messianic ministries that are like-minded to do something substantial together that we could not do alone. When I first came here two and a half years ago, this is what I shared. Now, two and a half years later, is what I'm still sharing. Because I see it the same way, with a little more detail. But when the bridge elders called and said, Gary, so what do you think of the building? I thought of that building back east. There's much about it I don't like. There are costs that we go into this place I can't even imagine. But I also remember... God led us to purchase that place, and there's a permanent home for that body that we came in 18 years before. This congregation met at the Holiday Inn. They met in Brentwood. They met in Sherman Oaks, and now they're here. It is time that Beth Ariel is planted and permanentized in the city, not at the uh, whims of others, but rather we can determine what we do, when we do it, where we do it, as God leads us to his glory and his honor. That's what we should be about. So that the next generation that comes in here doesn't have to think about this, doesn't have to worry about what their finances are because we can't continue to afford all the things we need to afford. We have been raised up right now for such a time as this. And it's now on our shoulders. Are we servants of God like Nehemiah and Esther? Are we concerned about the spiritual needs of the Jewish people, particularly, though not exclusively? Are we concerned about the needs of others? Are we concerned with the reputation and honor of God? Are we willing to be persistent in our prayers? And are we willing to allow the circumstances to be God's revelatory device telling us this is how we should move forward? Like I said, we can raise all kinds of questions, all kinds of concerns, all kinds of Reasons why you're out of your mind to think that we should go down this road. But I've heard them before back in Annapolis. I think God is really moving in this direction. And we need to be in prayer. So until the circumstances change where it's an impossibility, my direction is that way as God leads. And unless God shows me for some good reason that I'm way off the mark, and that's always a possibility, I will continue to move down this road to see God provide a permanent home here in the valley to make a difference in our lives, our descendants' lives, and the lives of the people around us. I only ask 
that you pray in support of this venture. I ask that you not complain. I ask that you not share your consternations. Keep them to yourself. I'm only asking you to pray and allow God to show up. And when he does, then we together will give thanks for what God and God alone has done. And like Esther, we'll throw a party at the end and we'll call it Bethario Purim. <laughs> I don't know. But we'll celebrate what God has done. I'm excited about it. And even if I hit a blank wall, I'll still be excited because God is taking us somewhere. And if it's not there, then I'll get around the wall and go where the path is really leading. So I'm not making any claims. God has not shown me anything. God has not revealed anything to me. I've had no dreams or visions. So don't, don't misunderstand. But I have a desire, and I know you share it with me. And so I simply want to pray with you, and I want us to pray together, your servants, as Nehemiah said, and as Esther called for those to join her in prayer. And then let's see what God has to say. Father, we thank you for this Purim this year. And so, Father, we thank you for your sovereign grace. We thank you for the way you protected your people and guided them at that time and into our very day and age in which we live presently. And, Father, you've raised Ari at Beth Ariel up 30-some-odd years ago. What a blessing. The work continues to bring honor and glory and keeps focusing on its calling. That is testimony to your grace. And now, Lord, it appears that a new fork in the road has appeared before us. Grant us the courage and the conviction to follow you as you lead. May we be sensitive not to lead ourselves by our own dreams or imaginations. But Father, might you lead us down your path for us. May we be attentive to your voice, for we are your servants, and we are concerned for your people, for our heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. And we are desirous of bringing glory and honor to you, and that your name would be honored in all that is done. We pray you would help us in being persistent in prayer, for it is oftentimes hard for us to do that. And then, Father, may we be wise with regard to how circumstances are unfolding, like they unfolded as recorded in the book of Esther and in the life of Nehemiah. Events are unfolding in our lives as well. So, Father, increase our faith to trust you and to walk further, knowing that things can very well change. But in the walking, your will will be found and your will will be done. We pray in Messiah's name.